1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez, author of the book, Key to the New World, A History of Early Colonial Cuba. Dr. Martinez Fernandez, thank you for joining me today.
0: Well, thank you, Colin. Um, I'm honored by this invitation.
1: Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez is a professor of history at the University of Central Florida. Born in Havana, Cuba and raised in Lima, Peru and San Juan, Puerto Rico, he holds a BA and MA degree in history from the University of Puerto Rico and a Ph.D. degree in history from Duke University. He is recognized as one of the most prolific and influential scholars in the field of Caribbean studies. He is the author of numerous publications and his new book, Key to the New World, is the winner of the 2018 Florida Book Awards Bronze Medal for Nonfiction. Dr. Martinez-Fernandez, before we delve into the book, uh, I wonder if you could tell us about your background growing up in Latin America and how you became so interested in its history.
0: Sure. Uh, I often think that it was almost unavoidable that I'd become a historian because of my, my own life trajectory. I was born in Cuba in 1960, which was, of course, the second year of the Cuban Revolution, and it was a Uh, To put it in the mildest terms, a very volatile situation. And my family left uh, the island in 1962. Uh, Then uh, after a brief stay in Miami, we resettled in Lima, Peru, which of course, although it's part of Latin America, it's a very, very different country. Um, There I spent uh, eight years. As you know, those first years of life are very uh, are very important in shaping your your mindset and actually the the future of your experiences. Uh, 1968 was a year of turbulence in Peru, a military coup d'état. Uh, my father then decided that it was uh, a good idea to leave uh, Peru at the time, so. By the age of ten, I had lived through uh, a revolution, a coup d'état, uh, two exiles, and, and I think uh, all of that um, sort of led me into the field of history, as trying to figure out why why did all this happen? And of course, Peru is a country with a very rich history and. Living there and, and visiting various historical sites, Acahualpa's ransom room, for example, where Pizarro forced the Incas to gather a treasure. Um, that was one of the sites that I saw early on. So I would say that, you know, all of these experiences, um, very historical, quote unquote, um, sort of pushed me in the direction of an interest in history.
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. I can definitely understand how how that might happen. So why uh, why the interest in, in Cuba? Have you gotten back uh, since you've been since you were born there? Yes. Well,
0: the, the interest in Cuba. Um, I, I was always a, a foreigner, whether it was in Peru or whether it was in Puerto Rico, here in the United States. So so Cuba to me is my it's home uh, in a historical sense. Um, I did research on Cuba for several years without the opportunity to visit Cuba. But then relations between Cuba and the U.S. started to open up, and in 1994, um, those uh, those who were born in Cuba and had U.S. passports were allowed to return. And that's that was my first year there, actually, uh, to visit for research purposes and also to get to know my country which i had i hadn't i had not been there since 82 and um since then i visited 10 times again for for research purposes
1: well have you had a chance uh, to just be a tourist and and enjoy the landscape culture
0: Well, well sure the research was the main motivation but I really wanted to know the the island and uh, have the experiences of of everyday Cubans um, enjoy and, and the diversity of the island of course Havana is a fascinating city with an incredible architecture places towards the center of the island in Cienfuegos for example beautiful topography um, Columbus was in awe when he saw Cuba for the first time so uh, There are many different regions in Cuba, and they're very diverse. Uh, Some of them are lush tropical vegetation. Others are semi-desertic. I did that and, you know, get to know the Cuban people, which was an important part of my self-discovery and which was also important for me to be able to write about Cuba and its people.
1: Let's let's talk about the book now. Um I think you say that it that started out as a collection of essays, uh but it was reading the book is really hard to tell that they were separate. Uh how did you manage to to bring them all together into one collective resource?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question because uh I started out writing and I believe the first one I wrote had to do with the colombian encounters and uh, 1492 and how the world not just cuba and the caribbean changed but how the world was transformed so that was in the the first one and then i wrote another one um and it sort of became um well i wrote a second one and then i thought gee nobody has written a comprehensive history of colonial cuba in believe it or not, and it's hard for me to say it, in 100 years. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a couple more. There was one on the indigenous population, and then, uh, as you said, it, it was not just a collection of, of essays, as you often see, which are disconnected. But I made an effort to have a a common tone, uh, a common style to make it read as if these are actually chapters in a book rather than disjoint, disjointed essays. Uh, that was not easy, I will add. It, it took several revisits to the manuscripts and make sure that uh, that there was um, a coherence to, to the story.
1: Well, you definitely accomplished it. Um, you just mentioned your common tone and style. That was one thing I was really impressed with the objectivity you were able to um, convey this history with, uh, even though it is such a polarizing uh, topic nowadays in how we, we perceive the discovery, um, quote unquote, of, of uh, the Americas. Uh, so talk about uh, dealing with this history with objectivity, um, even though it might elicit certain emotions or, or preconceived biases. Sure,
0: um, historians, uh, the same way as journalists, uh, there's always a degree of bias because we bring to the table ourselves, and that includes our prejudgments, preconceptions, our own experiences. So what I tell my students is that we cannot expect absolute lack of bias, but what we can always expect and actually What we should demand of authors is that they are honest and uh, that they make an effort to deal with whatever biases may be there. Uh, My previous book was on the Cuban Revolution, and you can imagine how controversial that is. And precisely because of that, I made an effort to uh, eliminate bias and eliminate uh, any angle that may be unfair to the narrative. Now, going back all these centuries to early colonial Cuba, as you said, these topics can also be very volatile. The the topic of Columbus, for example. Uh, We know that all throughout the Americas, uh, statues of Columbus are coming down, uh, defaced or vandalized. um, And all of that is, of course, very, very political. Now, what I tried to do was to um, sort of avoid uh, any notion that this is about heroes and villains. And in that chapter in particular, I wanted to do something different. So what I attempted to do was, okay, circa 1492, a time of profound transition in Europe, a time when we have a, a movement away from the Middle Ages and towards the Renaissance, which brings an entirely different worldview. And what I did was use 1492 to tell the story of two uh, individuals who represented two different worlds. Columbus, on the one hand, who was uh, very strongly influenced by scholasticism and the religious Catholic ideas of the times. And then on the other hand, we have Amerigo Vespucci who was indeed a scientist and who used uh, the inductive method. And therefore, while Columbus really struggled to find, uh, to figure out what these territories were, and he was coming up with ideas based on the Bible, once something else happened and that thesis no longer worked, then he looked for something else, which is in high contrast with Amerigo Vespucci, who was really conducting the explorations as if he were uh, a scientist, which which he was.
1: You talk about uh, Columbus, and, and obviously he's an important figure in this history, and it's someone we all know about. Uh, but throughout the book, you also talk about Diego Velazquez. I wonder if you could compare the two uh, and talk about who Velazquez was and what he did as a part of Cuban history.
0: Yes. Um, Columbus was a, a discoverer, if we may use that term. Um, he did not engage in the actual settling of of the Caribbean, although he lived for a while in the capital city, Santo Domingo, of the Dominican Republic. But on the other hand, um, uh, Diego Velazquez was a conquistador. And one of the things that I try to convey in this book is that those Europeans, particularly Spaniards, who came to Cuba to conquer, they themselves were the result of medieval Spain, the Spain of the Reconquista, which means the 7th century process of reconquering Spain away from uh, Muslim domination, Uh, that created a very militaristic society. Uh, It created a hierarchical society. Uh, It created a society in which monarchs at that time were not absolute monarchs, but rather they had to share power and wealth with um, with the military. And it was precisely men like Diego Velazquez who arrived in, in Cuba and wanted to establish something that was very similar to the world of the Spanish Recon- Reconquista. Uh, of course, there were no Muslims in Cuba and the rest of the Caribbean at the time. But what he tried to do was to use the the indigenous population as serfs, and a number of institutions that were in place in Iberia were adapted to the New World. For example, the encomienda, which was a practice of not enslaving, but having the indigenous population be the vassals of the monarch as it turned out the encomienda became very corrupt and the indigenous population became virtual slaves so so it's important to know men like diego velázquez and those who came with him because they had a certain set of aspirations and the aspirations were to uh gain prestige, power through military activities, but also there was this uh, component of not just making money, but also of gaining social prestige through titles, through land ownership. Uh, It's very interesting how that generation of conquistadors uh, created something from scratch, which was similar to what had transpired in iberia
1: well you've you've talked now about uh, the religious context uh, of columbus uh, and also now the, the political context of western europe and and I'd just like to, to praise you for including that context because I think it's very important to to understanding uh history
0: well thank you very much i I see history that way and, and actually um i've always been as a historian sort of a rebel um and in a way rebelling against that uh, micro history that is so focused on a particular uh, area and a particularly short period of time. So the way I like to see history is you need to understand the broader Atlantic context in order to understand what's happening in, in the island of Cuba and the rest of the Caribbean.
1: Well, speaking of of micro and macro history, I think that's something you talk about in your introduction. Uh, You say you separate the book into three different aspects the micro, the macro, and then the human element. Uh, Talk about how you did that and why you did that.
0: Yes, uh, I did that on purpose. And actually, that also speaks to what we were talking about earlier to have a book uh, which is not just isolated chapters, but it flows through. Uh, as as a single unit. Um, The macro history, the broader context, as we just spoke, is very important. You need to understand the trends uh, in the Atlantic, whether they have to do with religion, whether they have to do with mercantile aspects. You need to understand that the gold and silver that flowed from the Caribbean and Mexico and elsewhere to Europe created a price inflation and how that had reverberations in the Caribbean itself. So that's important. Now, that to most people, myself included, is not as appealing as understanding the human element of history. Um, So there's there's one strain if you will, and that's understanding the macro. The second one is looking at uh, the micro within Cuba. And by micro, I mean understanding that Cuba, from the very beginning of its colonial history, was also very different in different parts. We see Havana, which is a very small part of the island, but it, it becomes... A, an enclave of church power, political power, military power, where um, the population is regulated. There's a large presence of the state. And so that's one micro area. And then we look at other particular areas, for example, the sugar plantations, which were in the outskirts of Havana. That's a different world altogether. It's more of a um, state neural type of, of context in which the the planters play a role not just economically, but also in terms of social prestige. And then another micro area would be um, the, the hinterland. Uh, those places where uh, there's a small presence of the state, therefore, uh, people are freer to to move around. That is a context in which we find a very interesting propensity towards racial mixture. Um, different groups come together: surviving indigenous populations, um, freed slaves or slaves who fled and became maroons, some Spaniards, and you see how these different groups come together in a more egalitarian way in the context of the of the frontier whereas havana is much more highly hierarchical and it's not conducive to this type of uh, uh egalitarian um, type of relationship among different groups so that's the the other level micro and then I'm really convinced, and that's one of the things that I've been striving to do in my writing: is that people love stories, and people love stories of of, of individuals that they can relate to. People love stories of uh, common people. It's not just you know the big names, the Columbuses or the Diego Velazquez's. No, uh, I I made an effort in every single chapter to bring out one, two, maybe three characters, uh, not necessarily famous people, but everyday individuals who were impacted by the macro and micro level developments, but who also contributed to those <laughs> excuse me, to those developments. And and that's where I, I really that it, 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 it's one of the strengths of the book that the reader is being taken by the hand and, and shown the, the huge uh, vastness of the Atlantic world and then the regions in Cuba. But then at another level, we have these real human beings who struggled in Cuba, who faced um, challenges, uh, persecution. Some of who were very successful at doing what they were doing, and uh, so those are the three. And I, I, I wove those three uh, threads throughout the book.
1: Well, you did an excellent job, and, and I definitely enjoyed some of those anecdotes. Uh, did you have a, a favorite in particular?
0: Well, the, the, these things are so incredible. Um, as I said. Uh, there may be one to at least two or three in every chapter. Um, there's one of uh, Paula de Aguilu, who was a woman, uh, a black woman who was born in Santo Domingo, moved, was sold to a, an owner in Puerto Rico. Then she was sold again uh, to somebody in Cuba. Uh, At the heart of this was the jealousy of the wives of the owners. She was a very sensual um, uh, and and described as a very beautiful and elegant woman. So she ends up in Cuba in the eastern part of the island, and she marries one of the wealthiest men uh, in Cuba, who was in charge of the copper mines in the area of Santiago in the eastern part of Cuba again. now. She gets involved with uh, witchcraft. And what's fascinating about her story is that I use her as a window onto broader historical phenomena. So it's not just her story, as interesting as it can be, but also the fact that in Cuba, she gathered uh, ideas and practices from uh, the indigenous uh, religious culture, healing herbs, um, but she also uh, embraces the pharmacopoeia and the religious practices of West Africans and also European uh, witchcraft. She embraces all of that and she begins to practice uh, witchcraft for lack of a better term. One day, the inquisition knocks on her door and she's arrested and ends up in cartagena Uh, now this is a fascinating story she was so elegant um it's a good thing that uh, spanish bureaucracy in this case the inquisition took such good records of what was happening there is a list of her wardrobe because she was arrested and her Uh, belongings were confiscated so they created a a a list an inventory i should say of her clothing i i think that she may have had the the richest and most elegant and luxurious wardrobe of anybody in cuba any woman in cuba and yet she ends up in the inquisition um she's uh judged one time and then she does it again she goes back to the inquisition's prison in the end the great irony of this woman is that she ends up wearing a sackcloth which was sort of a punishment by the inquisition and to see this woman who who had the most luxurious wardrobe ending up in a prison in cartagena it's just a fascinating story Uh, another one of a Let's see, a a governor in Cuba, actually not a governor, uh, but he was in charge of the main fortress in Havana. Um, Another set of records that captures beautiful details are the talk about impeachments. The impeachment in Cuba was a practice, a Spanish colonial practice, that anytime any individual seized in his or her Official appointment well, actually, in his uh, there were no women in official appointments at the time uh, they would be judged by none other than that person's successor and the kind of detail that we find um, of the usually misdeeds of of those who were being judged are fascinating in his case um, he he became creolized in a way and he was criticized for degrading the the position of of the chief of that fort Uh, he was accused of dressing in women's clothes in the street accused of eating plantains that were fried in in the streets Uh, all of these things that somebody of his position should have not done Uh, so it's wonderful to have these materials and be able to recreate their life histories, which are not just interesting, but they're also very revealing of the times and the struggles of the period.
1: Yeah, yeah, amazing stories. And uh, I can only imagine uh, what it was like for you to come across those documentation and, and discover those stories.
0: Oh, yes. That's, as a historian, that is one of the sources of greatest happiness. Uh, sometimes you spend hours looking at documents and and see uh, read information that is repetitive and not really interesting, but then all of a sudden one afternoon you open a a file or a folder of documents and there is something uh, seemingly out of this world. That's um, that's that's very rewarding.
1: I was fascinated by some of the information you had about pre-contact that. The the book goes all the way back to Cuba's first settlement six or seven thousand years ago. Talk about uh, how you did your research for that period of history, and and, and give us a little summary of what pre contact Cuba was like.
0: Sure, uh, that was perhaps one of the hardest uh, of the chapters to write. The reason being that when I originally wrote that chapter. A few years ago, our knowledge of the pre-Columbian populations was very limited, um, but there have been so many um, important developments in technology, scientific developments, um, to be able to measure a number of things, uh, such as determining the diet of the indigenous populations uh, based on studies of the bones, etc. cetera. Uh, So much has happened in the last 15 years that it allowed me to and actually forced me to um, become familiar with uh, the broad and growing literature on the indigenous populations of the Caribbean. Now, some of the things that I learned um, had to do with the fact that the way in which The Caribbean indigenous population has been looked at is as if this was just a a snapshot of the region, and usually, the way the story was told was: okay, this is 1492, the year of contact, and this is what the Caribbean was like. So, in this island, uh, in this part of the island, we find certain groups that were more advanced technologically. Um, In that other island, the level was slightly lower as far as technology goes. But when you look at the Caribbean that way as a snapshot, um, it's not as rewarding as if you look at it as if you were taking a video uh, that moved uh, a long time, across time. Uh, For example, if we look at it that way, we see that there was incredible interaction uh, between the islands of the Caribbean and Mexico, Florida, and South America, and we find trade, for example, uh, items that were produced um, in what today is Colombia, for example, such as jewelry. Certain pets that were used as a symbol of distinction were also brought from from elsewhere, and then um, it also. Forces you to see the relations among the different groups in the islands in a different way. Um, One of the things that I was able to discover was that um, we we, we look at the Tainos, which were the most advanced of the groups. They were Neolithic, they had agriculture, they herded animals, they lived in villages, they were the most advanced. And then we look at the other groups that are referred to as archaic Indians. And they were uh, old stone age, uh, no agriculture, no animal herding, they were just basically hunters and gatherers. So how do we explain the fact that the Tainos were so advanced, they had such a complex society, hierarchy, the development of the arts, And then this other group uh, was so primitive. Well, the explanation that I was able to come up with was that we are finding that what made Taino society so complex was that these uh, groups of, of settlers were taking over the arcades and then they turned them into the working masses, which allowed the elites to develop the arts, religion, and so on. So it's it's interesting to see how in order to understand the complexity of the Taínos, who developed villages that had about a thousand people, which was quite significant at the time, uh, developed beautiful artifacts that were used in rituals or vases. How is that possible? So... One of the possible explanations that I find is that, well, once they take over the other population of archaics and those become the working masses in agriculture, then the society becomes complex.
1: Well, let's move forward to the changing demographics of Cuba. Um, as indigenous populations mixed with uh, European, mixed with uh, African, uh, and something you call a, a, a Cuban stew.
0: These are two parallel processes. On the one hand, we see a biological mixture as individuals from different racial and ethnic backgrounds come together, have children, um, and produce a, a population that is is not all white or all black or all indigenous, whatever that means, but it is a population of mixed racial an- ancestry. So that's the biological phase of this process. On the other hand, we find a process that is far more interesting, and that is culture. Um, a famous Cuban anthropologist by the name of Fernando Ortiz came up with this metaphor of Cuban culture being a stew um, which is Cuba's national dish which is called in Spanish un ajíaco so that stew is used by Fernando Ortiz as a metaphor for Cuban culture so how does this work? Okay, well you have a stew and that stew includes items ingredients from these three different um ethnic and cultural backgrounds so you have items such as corn and some of the uh, not potatoes but tubers that were indigenous to the caribbean those are in the mix then the europeans come and they bring their own ingredients. Uh, chicken for example was not known Uh, cattle was not known so we have the beef we have the the chicken uh, we have the onions and the garlic which were also imported from europe and then we have the the african population um, and their culture is strongly associated with the consumption of bananas and the consumption of, of yams all of these ingredients come together in this Cuban stew, now, as you know, in the United States, we talk about the melting the melting pot as a metaphor for cultural development that's not the case in Cuba because these ingredients are not melted uh, they don't become something uniform. What actually happens in this stew and If if you ever visit Miami, I would encourage you to have um, that dish, uh, which is so delicious. What makes it so delicious and important and special is that these ingredients retain their own flavors, their own textures, their own aromas, but... At the same time, they impact one another. So you have the the onions, for example, impacting the the yams and, and the corn impacting the other ingredients. And this is the metaphor for Cuban culture, which in essence means, yes, these ingredients come from different backgrounds. They're mixed together in this Cuban stew. But the important part of it is that You don't find an attempt to create something that is uniform, like the melting pot, but rather a culture in which these different ingredients retain their own flavors and at the same time create something new and very complex.
1: So uh, we haven't uh, talked much about slavery. Um, Talk about how that contributed to Cuban history. And also, uh, you talk a lot about the resistance of slaves. I wonder if you could mention that.
0: Sure. Uh, These two stories go together hand in hand. On the one hand, uh, the master class in its attempts to enslave the natives and and in that process, excuse me, I should say, enslave the African imported uh, individuals and in the process an attempt to take their culture away from them in different ways including religion Uh, now even musical culture because it's fascinating to see how throughout the americas wherever slaves lived uh, the master class and the authorities tried to ban musical practices such as playing drums because they were viewed as potential ways of communicating and organizing revolts. On the other hand, you have the slaves' attempts to combat that unnatural situation of being enslaved. And you see that from the very beginning, even in the the slave vessels, uh, when slaves are trying to escape slavery no matter in what way. And one of the saddest ones, of course, was to escape slavery through suicide. So these two stories are intertwined. The master class trying to subjugate, not just physically, but culturally, the slaves and the slaves very instinctively from the beginning trying to escape that, uh, that system of oppression um slavery was very important in cuba from the beginning because the indigenous population um, was disappearing Uh, there were two ways in which this was happening on the one hand by death Uh, the diseases brought by the spaniards uh, for which the indigenous population did not have any uh, antibodies they decimated the population. Of course, there were battles in the conquest in which uh, thousands of indigenous people were were killed. And then also uh, the fact that many of them starved because the conquest turned upside down the ecology and the farming system of the natives. For one thing, when the Europeans came And they let loose uh, animals such as pigs, horses, goats, cattle. That had a negative impact on the the farming practices of the the indigenous. And then even more sadly, the fact that their whole world was turned upside down, Uh, the religion, so many aspects that many of the indigenous people lost the desire to live and have children. So the records uh, by the chroniclers show how many of them committed suicide. Abortions became very common because mothers did not want to bring children into this uh, world that had become hellish since the arrival of the Europeans. So because the indigenous population uh, sort of disappeared, and I want to be very careful saying sort of disappeared because that population also mixed into other racial groups and therefore they became Hispanicized. Now, um, the Europeans also believed that the natives could not sustain the harsh work that we associate with sugar production including the harvesting of the of the sugar cane with machetes and there was an emphasis on bringing african slaves who were believed to be uh, better equipped physically to sustain that rigorous system of labor If if you look at the historiography of the caribbean what has been written on the history of those societies, you will find a very intimate connection between sugar and slavery. Uh, For some reason, slavery, and and even to this day, um, sugar production uh, requires a type of very regimented labor that is either slavery, which no longer exists, of course, in the Americas, or whether it's a coerced type of of work. We don't have to go too far. Here in South Florida, sugarcane is produced and the workers who are imported for the most part from Jamaica and Haiti live under conditions that are very similar to those of slavery, unfortunately, all these centuries after up uh, to the original arrival of slaves. So that's the other reason sugar and slaves went together, not just in early Cuba, but really throughout the Caribbean, uh, that's I think the, the saddest part of the history of, of the region, how sugar, which was so profitable, uh, it's important to keep in mind that during those early centuries, Sugar was a luxury item, very valued in Europe, and therefore it produced enormous profits for the planters and also for the merchants involved in the trade of of sugar.
1: Well, uh, I think you call uh, sugar and slavery a binomial um, that's the most significant, transformative, and enduring factor in the history of the Caribbean. So that's uh, definitely something you cover in the book.
0: Yes, and enduring because even though slavery no longer exists in the Caribbean, we do see the legacies of, of the slave system and the legacy of the hierarchical system around slavery still today. Um, For example, uh, many scholars and some literary figures, Jamaica Kincaid, for example, study uh, the current situation in islands of the Caribbean and they find an association between the sugar plantation world and contemporary tourist industries in the region. Um, It's, you know, the hierarchy's still there, the fact that um, circumstances make it very difficult for individuals to survive outside of the tourist sector, which is relatively well-paying. The fact that there's a dependency on the outside world in sugar, if you don't have a consumers, if you don't have a world market, you can't go forward. In the hotel industry, if you don't have a a foreign population who's willing to pay for hotels and restaurants, um, then the tourism will not happen. Uh, it's interesting to see how uh, in after 9-11, uh, one of the sectors that became affected throughout the Caribbean in large measure because people feared traveling uh, was tourism. Uh, So we see that dependency. Um, For many centuries, the dependency was on how much is the world market willing to pay for sugar? We now see a different relation between the tourist industry and, uh, and the world market.
1: Well, uh, let's talk a little bit more about that, the lasting legacy, not just of of slavery and and its connection to sugar production, but about how Cuba is like today uh, and how it's been affected by this history of, of contact and the encomienda system and all those things you write about in the book. How has that contributed both positively and negatively to Cuba today?
0: Yes, that's an important question. And actually, Um, My previous book, Revolutionary Cuba, A History, delves into that. In other words, how can we understand what has transpired in Cuba during the revolution? Uh, Where do we find the roots of that? And of course, the roots are very, very profound. Going back to the 1500s, let's start with colonialism. Colonialism. Cuba, of course, was a Spanish colony and as such endured oppression and endured exploitation. It was countries in in Europe and later on the United States that provided a market for Cuba and sort of pushed Cuba into a monocrop economy, meaning that sugar was the overwhelming uh, product. Now, that continued in Cuba actually until very recently because even though Cuba became independent from Spain, there were certain mechanisms, tariffs, incentives, and and restrictions on on manufacturing, indirectly so, that explain why Cuba during the 1940s, 50s, 60s, well, actually until 1961 or so, was so dependent on the U.S. market for Cuban sugar. Now, once the United States is out of the picture as trading partner of Cuba, the Soviets and Eastern Europe and and China, to some extent, become the markets for, for Cuban products. Again, we see how Cuba fails to industrialize to a a level that would liberate the island from that dependence of sugar, how Cuba fails to diversify its agriculture, and what we see happening during the 60s, 70s, and 80s is that Cuba is still dependent on one product, sugar, from one market basically the, the 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 Soviet Union and a few uh, Soviet, a uh, few socialist countries in Europe and Asia. That is what I mean by the, the enduring legacies, a country that by circumstances and by actions of the ruling powers was forced into depending on sugar and how that Never really changed until about 10 or 12 years ago when sugar is really basically out of the picture in the Cuban economy. Uh, The other thing has to do with coerced labor. Now, I don't want to come across a saying that revolutionary Cuba was a slave system because it certainly was not. I want to make that very clear. But what I want to say is that the coercion of labor, which we see happening under slavery during the the 1500s and, and forward, and then we see intensifying in the 19th century, and then after abolition, what we find is that the master class and the elites, even though they've liberated the slaves, reluctantly so, they still continue to apply mechanisms that keep the former slaves from freedom uh, in terms of, for example, accessing their own land and being able to become what they always wanted to be, which was peasants who were independent. And then we see, where we walk into the Cuban revolutionary era, how the regime used a variety of coercive mechanisms to have workers in sugarcane. Uh, any worker who has an option would rather do something else than cut cane. The mechanisms in place were such as well, if you were um, a prisoner, you would cut cane. In Cuba during the 1960s, there were concentration camps, believe it or not. um, In many instances, they included dissidents. They also included uh, gay men. They also included um, religious people um, who were sent to these institutions. And guess what they were used for? They were used to cut cane. Also, beginning around 1963, the Cuban government used uh, military conscripts, and they were forced to cut cane. Later on, uh, Cubans who applied for exit visas—I know a few of them personally. Okay, you want to leave Cuba? Well, this is what you have to do: you have to cut cane for a couple of years. 1970 was the year of the of the heralded. 10 million ton harvest in which Castro believed that we can only get 10 million tons of sugar we're going to get so much capital that we're going to invest in manufacturing and we will finally be free from sugar well guess what it didn't happen it it reached barely 8.5 million tons which was not enough for those goals so what happened in the harvest of 1970 these things that are hard to believe and sometimes i tell my students well imagine uh the government decides that we're going to have this massive mobilization of workers and the government decides that this university is going to be closed and not just this one but all universities and even high schools and me the professor and my students were going to be working cutting cane professors are usually not very good at that um so that's another way in which it's so important to understand the early history of cuba to later understand um what has transpired in cuban history over the past century that was one of the main motivations for me to study that period
1: Mm -hmm. well it it certainly makes sense uh then that the the book cover is a A sketch of a sugar cane. Yes. Uh,
0: I, I'd like to get involved in, in almost every aspect of the book uh, production, um, including the cover. As, as you know, uh, the decision about the book cover is a marketing decision uh, based on what they feel, the publishers feel would be attractive. They pay attention to the spine of the book when so when people walk by a a shelf of books in a in a lo, in a bookstore, um, but I like to work with the with the images myself. One of the most uh, rewarding aspects of putting this book together was a selection of the various illustrations inside the book, and I also. Uh, designed the, the cover, which, as you said, has a, a couple of cane stalks. Um, uh, and this is a sketch, actually, from the 1700s that one day I came across uh, with, and I said, gee, uh, this would be a, a good symbol for the cover. But also, I think it's very aesthetically pleasing. It's a, it's a minimalist cover, as you see. but. Um, it was something that I really enjoyed uh selecting the font, which would be relative to the fifteen hundreds, even the color of the font it's It's a pleasure to to be involved in the process of of creating the cover as well
1: well congratulations on on a great book uh from the cover to the content um I feel like we could talk about it forever um well, let's, uh, why don't you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, I, I, I always have a, a line of book projects and, uh, the one that I'm currently working on is, is related to some of the, uh, stylistic resources that I use in Key to the New World, um, One of the fascinating things of being a historian and being a historian for decades is that you get to travel to archives find materials that seem incredible um find characters that seem to come out of the pages of a novel by gabriel garcia marquez and these were actual uh happenings um Over the last 15 years, I've been gathering uh, materials, documents, information about slaves and former slaves in Cuba and the Caribbean who, for some reason, had an extraordinary existence. Um, This is one of them, for example, which which is a wonderful uh, view into slavery and the beliefs of the slaves. This comes out of a engineer's diary, uh, a man from New York who was living in Cuba in one of the plantations, and he was in charge of the machines. This was quite common, actually, to have these engineers from New England and New York working in Cuba. So he keeps the diary. And one day he observes, he's near near the shore, and he observes that a, an African slave, probably Crail, born in Cuba, uh, or probably African actually, he hops onto a little rowboat, and he starts pushing. Uh, he, well, he starts pushing the rowboat to the beach, and then he hops on it and begins to row. The engineer is baffled, because, and he asks the man on the boat, what are you doing? Where are you going? And his response was just shocking. He said, I am going to my homeland in Africa. This is Cuba. <laughs> of course, you can't roll your way back to Africa. But it's fascinating to, to read into that. Well, number one, the longing for the homeland. Uh, number 2 the belief that you could reconnect with the homeland number 3 the fact that water is a is is a means of of connection with the old world so much that slaves um some of whom committed uh suicide would drown uh because they believe that if they drowned that water would connect them back home and their spirit would reach Africa. I mean, it sounds like an absurd uh, action by that slave, but when you understand their culture and their beliefs, it makes uh, perfect sense. Another one, I I was just shocked when I I was reading this uh, many years ago and actually I came across this document in Havana at the National Library. So uh plantations, and this is the late seventeen hundreds, uh usually had if not a resident physician, <clears throat> more likely a physician that would make the rounds through uh to different plantations and treat the slaves for whatever uh maladies, diseases they were they were facing. So I was fortunate to find this uh, manuscript. By a physician who visited a particular plantation in Matanzas, Cuba, which was the, the buckle of the sugar belt in Cuba. And he writes stories about different patients. One of them was particularly striking. And, and again, this speaks to the, the mindset and the beliefs of, of slaves. So this slave. Uh, was hurt, uh, from what I gathered, he was, uh, hurt in one of the limbs, an arm, and he was sent to the infirmary in that plantation. A few d- days later, the physician comes and starts examining him, and later on, he draws up a medical story for that slave whose name we don't know. <clears throat> And this is what the story tells. One beautiful afternoon, that slave and other slaves uh, wanted to be outside to enjoy the the warmth of uh, of the afternoon, the beautiful blue skies. The head nurse, however, saw them going out and was upset by that and ordered them to come back into the infirmary apparently most of them did except for this one slave who stayed there enjoying the afternoon and the beauty of the sky the breeze and so on the head nurse shouts at him and the doctor quotes what he said and what the head nurse said was you dog come inside immediately What's fascinating and striking is the response of this man who responds and says I am not a dog I am a Christian just like you I mean just imagine the power of that uh, of those words the the aspect that we talked about briefly earlier the the resistance to slavery so on the one hand Slavery is a system based on the exploitation of the slaves. It's very hierarchical. The head nurse is a free person, therefore not a slave. We understand that. But we also understand that that slave had some religious knowledge. He had been taught probably by the resident priest about uh, Christianity, and he saw Christianity as many slaves did in in the u.s south for example as, as a religion of redemption and they used the, the the imagery of the old testament and the slaves and how moses uh was so uh, was was the key actor in the liberation of the slaves in ancient egypt so this man has that response now He walks inside to the room where his cot was, and he lays down. He does not stand up or have anything to drink or anything to eat for three days. At night, one night, he walks out of the infirmary, and he reaches the cemetery that was close to the infirmary. And he sits down there and he dies. Now, it's a very sad story, but it's also a very beautiful story. If you understand what all of this meant, number one, he was publicly humiliated. That is something that to this day in in West African cultures is something that can lead to depression and the desire to not live anymore i've read this in contemporary books on culture and suicide in in west african countries so this man was humiliated he became immediately depressed and he lost all desire to live now he doesn't just die anywhere he goes to the slave cemetery basically a potter's field not quite a cemetery and he sits there now this is important because as a christian he knew that he could not commit suicide that shows his understanding of of the christian faith but as a west african man who still carried many of the cultural aspects of west african religiosity he knows that if he goes to the cemetery and he dies there, he is being reconnected with his kin. Again, important West African notions of of, of the afterlife. So it's stories like these that you can't really make up and they're beautiful even though sad in many cases, but there's great pleasure when you understand uh, the culture surrounding those actions and the times. And, and you can understand, well, why did this happen? So those two stories, just like the one I mentioned earlier of Paula de Aguilú, um, are the types of examples of vignettes that I have been collecting and writing uh, for several years, which should be my, my next uh, book project.
1: Well, I definitely look forward to it. It sounds very interesting, and certainly narratives that uh, haven't had a chance to to be expressed, and sh- and should be.
0: Yes, and, and there are they're also stories, uh, like the ones I try to tell in Key to the New World.
1: So for listeners that would like to get a copy of Key to the New World, where can they find it?
0: Well, um, the easiest way would be to visit the webpage of the University Press of Florida. Uh, it's also available in Google and other vendors. Um, that, that would be the easiest way, yes.
1: Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez, I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you again for joining me.
0: Well, I have enjoyed it too. Uh, thank you very much, Colin, and I hope that listeners will enjoy it as well.